Someone has said the trouble with being a leader is you can't always be sure whether people are following you or chasing you. I don't think that was ever more true than when it comes to Christian leaders. That's why Peter, having just talked at the end of chapter 4 in verse 12 about the fiery ordeal among you, and in verse 13 about how you share the sufferings of Christ, and in verse 16, how you suffer as a Christian, he immediately turns his attention to the leaders in chapter 5 and verse 1, and he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Peter knows that in times of trouble, leaders have to step up and be counted. If, as he said in chapter 4, verse 17, judgment begins with the household of God, then that house better be in order or it will fall. And the responsibility for that order lies with the leaders. You see, suffering not only tests my character as an individual, as he said in chapter 4, verse 12, it also tests our character as a church. And more particularly, it tests the character of our leaders. Jesus described that very vividly in John 10. He said in verse 12, the hired man is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, sometimes you don't know what kind of shepherd you've got until a wolf shows up. And then it may be too late. Peter's going to tell us in the first four verses of chapter 5, speaking specifically to the leaders, how to be a good shepherd. So this morning I'm going to preach, I'm not just going to preach to the choir, I'm going to preach even more specifically than that. I'm going to preach to the elders of our church. And I welcome you to stay here and listen. And as I talk about our elders, it may help you to appreciate them a little bit more as I talk about how you become a good shepherd. I see six characteristics that he gives here for a good shepherd. Number one is the right estimation. In order to be a good shepherd, you have to have a right estimation of yourself. And there are three things at the outset of this passage that indicate what that right estimation is. Number one, leadership is not a solo act. Notice what he says. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Now, that word elders is the Greek word presbyters. It's a word that means literally someone who has age and maturity, but it's used throughout the New Testament as a title for church leaders. In verse 2, he also uses another word, episkopos, which means overseer, or is a word that's translated bishop. He also uses a word in verse 2 to explain their job, and that is the word shepherd, which is the word from which we get our word pastor. So you can call these individuals elders, bishops, pastors. Those terms are interchangeable. But what I would like you to notice about this term is that it's plural. 
leadership in the local church is always a plurality. It says of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. It says in Acts 20, 17, and from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders, plural, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Leadership in the church is always plural. James says in James 5.14, if you're sick, who are you to call for? The elders of the church. You see, leadership is always requiring that I be a team player, not a solo act. Second part of the right estimation is leadership does not make you superior. When you are a leader, it does not mean that you are on a pedestal. That's why Peter says in verse 1, I'm, I'm exhorting the elders, notice, the elders among you. And he says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. You see, you're not above them, you are among them. And there's a sense of equality here, there's a sense of relationship here. We're all on the same plane spiritually. And then third, in the right estimation, is that leadership does not make you the owner. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now I hear pastors today say all the time, this is my church, or my flock. Well, it's God's church, and it's God's flock. In fact, Paul told the elders from Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It is his church. He bought it. In fact, Titus 1.7 tells us that an elder is God's steward. And a steward is someone who takes care of something that belongs to somebody else. And that's what the elders simply do. They steward. They take care of that which belongs to God. So a good shepherd has to have a right estimation of himself. And I want you to notice how Peter illustrates that, illustrates that right estimation. He says, I am exhorting you, notice, as your fellow elder. Now, Peter was apparently an elder. He was probably an elder in the church at Jerusalem previously. He may now be an elder. He tells us at the end of this book he's writing from the city of Babylon, which may be an alias for Rome, but in any case, he is in a church now, and apparently he's presently an elder. Now, that's interesting. He could have said, listen up, I'm an apostle. He could have said, listen up, I've got the keys to the kingdom. Some might be surprised that he doesn't say, listen up, I'm the pope. But what does he say? He says, I exhort you as your fellow elder. Why? Because he has a right estimation of himself. Second thing that characterizes a good shepherd is the right experience. 
Notice what Peter also says. He says, I'm your fellow elder, and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter says, I'm a witness and I'm a partaker. I've seen and I've shared in the sufferings of Christ and the glory to come. You see, Peter isn't just speaking theoretically. He's speaking from experience. When he says in verse 1, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he's taking us back to the Garden of Gethsemane where he watched the Lord Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood as he agonized over drinking the cup of the suffering that was due to us. When he talks about this, he's taking us back to that day on the hill in Calvary when he watched the Lord Jesus hang on the cross in pain and shame and suffering. And when he says at the end of verse 1, I'm also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, he's taking us back to that day when Jesus took him up on the mountaintop along with James and John. And he got to see the Lord Jesus transformed before him and his son or his face shone like the sun. When he says in verse 2 at the beginning, shepherd the flock of God among you, he's taking us back to that occasion by the sea when Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time, what did Peter say to, or Jesus say to Peter? He said, feed my sheep. When he says in verse 3, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge. He's taking us back to the time in Luke 22 when Jesus taught he and the other disciples about what it was to be a servant leader. When he says in verse 5, in the middle, clothe yourselves with humility. He's taking us back to the upper room where he watched the Lord Jesus clothe himself with a towel and wash the disciples' feet. When he says in the middle of verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he knew about that firsthand. You see, he's taken us back to the occasion on the night before Jesus' crucifixion when Jesus told Peter that Satan would sift him like wheat. And he denied the Lord three times. You see, what I want you to see here is that Peter wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but he also wrote it out of his own personal experience with Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that that must be the case with every good shepherd. You have to cultivate a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and then out of what he has taught you, you are to exhort others. All leaders have to be learners. And when you stop being a learner, you have stopped being a leader. See, I, I can only lead people as far as I have followed. And so the second characteristic of a good shepherd is he has to have the right experience. Third, the right exhortation. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, Peter refers to the church as the flock of God. That's a familiar analogy. It was in that day because there were many shepherds. It is a familiar analogy throughout the New Testament. And what it tells us is that you're very much like a sheep. 
Now, have you ever thought about how you're like a sheep? Let me give you a few ideas. Number one, sheep are clean animals, unlike dogs or pigs, which tells us something about what the Lord has done. He has taken us from being Gentile, unclean animals, and he has brought us into his church, and he's made us clean. That's one characteristic of sheep. Secondly, sheep are useful animals. Shepherds raise sheep not primarily for the meat, which would have been very expensive, but they raised sheep for the wool and the milk and the lambs, which grew up to produce more wool and more milk. You see, if you are a Christian, you should be useful to God by producing that which is valuable and by reproducing yourself by bringing others to Christ. third thing about sheep is that sheep were often used as sacrifices to God. And Romans chapter 12 tells us that we are to be living sacrifices given to the Lord. But then also, sheep are notoriously ignorant. And sheep are prone to wander. That's why Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep tend to wander. And sheep are totally defenseless. Sheep cannot run away fast when an enemy comes. They don't have claws. They don't have sharp horns to defend themselves. Sheep need a shepherd. And that's true of spiritual sheep as well. And we have the good shepherd, as Jesus called himself. But Jesus also gave under-shepherds to the church. He gave the responsibility of shepherding to others. Here they're called, in verse 1, the elders. Now, what are shepherds supposed to be doing? Well, I listed three things. Number one, a shepherd must lead the sheep. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, The elders have charge over you in the Lord. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Elders are to lead the churches to follow. That's why one of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 4 is that he must be one who manages his own household well. Why? Because if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? See, that's why we don't vote on everything around here. You say, well, that's not American. Well, maybe not, but it's biblical. Because, you see, God has given the responsibility of leadership to the elders. Second thing they are to do as shepherds is they are to feed the sheep. They are to lead the sheep of God into green pastures where they can feed on the truth of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says they are to give you instruction. One of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.2 is that he has to be one who is able to teach. Now that doesn't mean that every elder has to get up here and preach and teach. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.17 says double honor is due especially to those who work hard at preaching and teaching. All elders don't do that. There are some who are given the gift of teaching or preaching, and that's their responsibility because of the gift they are given. But 
elders are responsible to feed the flock, which means they have to be responsible about, uh, responsible about who is doing the teaching and what is being taught. And then third, they are to protect the sheep. Paul said to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Why? Because after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. You know what kind of wolves attack the church? False teachers. And the leaders have the responsibility to protect the flock from false teachers, to care for those who are wounded and feeble, to seek those who are lost. In fact, the writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. The right exhortation to elders is to shepherd God's flock by leading them and feeding them and protecting them. And then the fourth characteristic of a good shepherd is the right execution. Elders not only have a job to do, they're to carry it out in the right way. And Paul mentions three ways elders are to carry out their responsibility. First of all, the mood, then the motive, then the method. First is the mood. Look at verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among, among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. The mood of an elder is that he's doing the job willingly. Now that doesn't mean that there's no sense of compulsion in an elder. In fact, Acts, or Paul said in Acts 20, 28 that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. You see, an elder is not somebody who just volunteers for the job. An elder is someone that God the Holy Spirit has made into an elder. And because of that, there needs to be an inner compulsion to do that job. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He said, For if, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, Paul knew that he had been called by God. He knew that he had been gifted by God. And he said, woe is me if I don't do the job. An elder ought to have that same sense, that God has called me, God has given me a shepherd's heart, God has given me this responsibility, and I have an inner compulsion before God to carry it out. But see, Peter's not talking here about an inner compulsion. He's talking about an external compulsion. He's saying you shouldn't serve as an elder because you feel coerced. You shouldn't serve as an elder because you were simply appointed. It should be something you do voluntarily. You know, God always wants willing servants. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 24, 5 that says, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and he shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. If you were in the army and you got married, you got a one-year honeymoon. That's pretty good. Now, God doesn't just say that because he puts a great priority on marriage. He also says that because he doesn't want people out on the battlefield who would rather be at home. You see, he, he wants people serving him who want to do it. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 3, you remember how God trimmed down Gideon's army to 300? 
the first ones he sent home were those who didn't want to be there. He just said, if you're afraid and you want to go home, go home. Why? Because God wants people who want to serve him. And if that's true generally, it's especially true of those who are called to be leaders. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. You see, God has called you. He's given you a shepherd's heart. He's given you a burden for the people of God. And you are to willingly bear others' griefs and sorrows and cares. We are to be like the good shepherd who willingly laid down his life for the sheep. That's the mood. It's not just a job. It's a privilege. And second is the motive. He says at the end of verse 2, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Jesus pointed out in Matthew 23, 5 that the leaders in Israel were in it for their own gain. He said they do their deeds to be noticed by men and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. They love what they can get out of it. But Peter says the motive for being a leader in God's church is never self-promotion. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. These religious leaders went in under the pretense of visiting helpless widows, and they devoured their resources. And unfortunately, that happens more often than we would like to think today as well. It's easy to abuse power for selfish gain. And that's why one of the qualifications of an elder in Titus 1.7 is that he must be one who is not fond of sordid gain. The motive of an elder is not what can I get, it's what can I give. And then third is the method in verse 3. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Because elders have been given authority by God, there's a temptation to control and dominate people. In fact, fact, for many people, the lust for power is greater than the lust for money. But that's the antithesis of leadership God style. Jesus gave his equation for great leadership in Mark chapter 10. He said in verse 42, those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slaves of all. You see, elders are not called to be dictators. They're called to be shepherds. They are not called to lead by mandate. They are called to lead by example. One summer, I worked for Davy Tree Company up in Washington, D.C. And I had a boss by the name of John Dingus. And I still remember him because he was an interesting fellow. He had risen pretty high up in the organization, and he could have been sitting in an office all day, but he didn't do that. 
And when you worked with John, John would say, you know, there'd be a truckload of rhododendrons and they would have huge balls on them. And he would say, I want us to move these rhododendrons over to that landscaping bed. And then he would grab one in each hand and he would do the work of two men. You know, as I look back on my experiences of working in the summers, John Dingus got more work out of me than anybody else who was ever my boss. And you know why that was? Because he led by example. And that's the way elders are to lead. They are to lead by examples. Shepherds don't drive sheep. They get out in front and they lead sheep. And Peter says, elders are to lead by example. That's the method. In fact, that's why when you look at the New Testament, you will find far more information about the qualifications of elders than you will about the job description of elders. You know why? Because who I am is far more important than what I'm doing. Because we are to lead by example. I think one of the problems in the church today is we have too many celebrities and not enough servants. Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, and then he said, I've given you an example so you can do as I have done to you. The elders are to influence the lives of other people as living examples of both devotion to God and sacrificial service to his people. I had a teacher in Bible college by the name of John Harper. He wasn't a great teacher. He wasn't a great preacher. In fact, I wouldn't have even gone on Sunday anywhere to hear him preach. I don't really remember anything he ever said. But I watched him in class weep tears down his cheek when he talked about his devotion to Jesus Christ. And I watched him weep tears when he shared about the burden or the hurt or the pain of somebody else. And he gave me something far more important than information. He gave me an example of what a shepherd ought to be. Elders are to have the right execution of their responsibility. The mood not because they have to, but because they want to. The motive, not for what they can gain, but for what they can give. And the method, not leading people by barking orders, but leading people by example. And then the fifth thing that characterizes a good shepherd is what I call the right exasperation. And you have to look hard to see this. It's in verse 3, and it's that phrase, those allotted to your charge. That word allotted means entrusted. For those of us who are elders, God has entrusted to our care the sheep, which Acts 20, 28 says He purchased with His own blood. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. God purchased them with His own blood and He handed them over to us and said, I'm trusting them to you. How do you think that makes elders feel? Well, it makes me feel exasperated. You know why? Two reasons. Number one, the work is too hard. 
1 Timothy 3.1 says, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, Appreciate those who diligently labor among you. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says, Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. See, elder is just not some prestigious title that we give to people. It's not some pampered position. It's a responsibility before God to shepherd His sheep. And it's too hard because it's a spiritual job. I mean, I find I have enough trouble keeping myself in line spiritually. And then I have to worry about my family. And beyond that, because I'm an elder, I'm responsible for you. That's too hard. And you know what? The problem with a job is you're never finished. Because there's always more you could be doing. There's something else you could be doing for somebody. So you never say, I'm done. It's never over. It's too hard. You know what else? The burden's too heavy. You know, being an elder is not like coaching a little league team. It's not like making widgets at the factory. Elders are responsible for people's souls. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. It's a pretty exasperating verse. I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to watch over the souls of people, and we will stand one day before Jesus Christ and give an account, not only for ourselves, but for you. I want you to see how Paul responded to this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He expresses some of this exasperation. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's wrapping up a list of physical hardships that he endured. And when you come to verse 27, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then verse 28 he says, And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul felt the daily pressure of concern for those people in those churches. He says, when somebody is weak, I feel it. When somebody sins, I feel it. You see, that's the same burden that rests on the elders. When you take it seriously, it's exasperating. In fact, I find myself not praying, Lord, bring us more people. I find myself praying, Lord, help us to minister to the people we've already got. But let me tell you something. You know what happens when you get exasperated? You realize the job is too hard and the burden is too big. And you come back to the Lord. In fact, if you read that account... Paul's talking about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The very next thing he says is, if I have anything to brag about, it's my weakness. And then he builds up to chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. 
It's an exasperating job which teaches us we've got to give it to God because only He can accomplish it through us. And then there's a sixth characteristic of a good shepherd, and that's the right expectation. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, there's really only one shepherd. Jesus said of His church in John 10, 16, they shall all become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus called Himself the Good Shepherd in John 10. The writer of Hebrews calls Him the Great Shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. And Peter here calls Him the Chief Shepherd. One day He will appear. And when He appears, He will give to those who have been elders shepherding His church the unfading crown of glory. Now, there are several crowns mentioned in the Scriptures. There's the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. It's promised to those who bring others to Christ. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. It's promised to those who have loved the Lord's appearing. There's the crown of life in James 1.12. It's promised to those who love the Lord and persevere through trials. This crown is the crown of glory. And it's promised particularly to those who have been elders overseeing the church of God. Now, what is this crown? I mean, you say, I, crown, I, I prefer a ball cap. Now, what is this? Well, some people say it's an expression of the extent of responsibility that God will give us when we reign with Him. Some people say it's an expression of the facets of Christian character that we will wear throughout eternity. I don't know what it is. But you know, I think sometimes when we think about rewards, we look at them through selfish eyes. I hear people talking about how big their mansion's going to be in heaven. You know, when I get to heaven... I'm going to kiss the ground and be thankful I got there by the grace of God. And I think sometimes when we talk about rewards, we think about them materialistically. Like how big will my mansion be and how bright will the streets of gold be? But you know, when we get to heaven, there will be no sin and therefore there will be no selfishness. And I believe that the greatest reward in heaven will be that we will be given the greatest capacity to bring the greatest amount of glory to Jesus Christ forever. The greatest reward will be to have the greatest capacity to bring the greatest amount of glory to Him. You see, regardless of what you think this crown is, we read in Revelation 4.10 that when we get to heaven, the elders are going to take their crowns, and what are they going to do with them? They're going to throw them at the feet of the Lord Jesus. So whatever that reward is, I'm going to use it to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That will be the greatest privilege in heaven. And the greatest regret of heaven will be to have nothing of significance to cast at His feet. You want to know how to be a good shepherd? 
You have to have the right estimation. You're a fellow shepherd, not a solo act. You're not superior to anyone else. You're among them, and it's not your church. It's God's. Second, you have to have the right experience, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Third, you have to have the right exhortation to shepherd the flock of God by leading and feeding and protecting. Fourth, you have to have the right execution, the mood, not because you have to, but because you want to. The motive, not for what you can gain, but for what you can give. And the method, not lording it over, but leading by example. The right exasperation, realizing that it's an overwhelming job apart from the power of God. And sixth is the right expectation, the crown of glory that the Lord Jesus will give when he returns. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that focuses on the responsibility of leaders. And Father, I pray for the leaders in this church that you would help each of us to be this very kind of individual to take that responsibility seriously because we realize that we are watching over people's souls. We are watching over the very people that you paid your blood to own. And Father, I pray as a church, regardless of whether we go through easy times or hard times, that we might be found faithful until you come. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.